If you enjoy this episode of the Permaculture Podcast and would like more from the show, including directly influencing upcoming episodes, receiving announcements for upcoming video live streams, as well as a regular look behind the scenes, become a member of the podcast Patreon community today. For as little as $1 a month, you'll receive patron-exclusive posts and updates not available anywhere else. At just $5 a month, you'll receive those as well as early access to every new episode ad-free. Join now at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Only 10 weeks remain in the annual Summer to Fall fundraiser, and the show needs your help. Your direct donations during this campaign allow the podcast to thrive rather than subsist. Through this support, you can hear coverage of conferences and events, as well as interviews recorded in person and face-to-face. New for the coming year, this work expands to include video documentaries of permaculture people and projects. None of these can happen, however, without you. Donate now using Venmo, at Permaculture Podcast, online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or you can send something in the mail. Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. A note on the content for today's episode. The interview which follows is a discussion of disasters and their impacts, including food insecurity, personal injury, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. How do we prepare ourselves for disasters, whether natural or man-made, such as a seasonal storm, global pandemic, economic collapse, or political upheaval? This question and those scenarios forms the basis for co-host David Bilbrey's interview with David Dodd. Mr. Dodd is the founder of International Sustainable Resilience Center, a nonprofit focusing on helping communities recover from disasters and build the capacity necessary to prepare for and withstand these disruptions in the future. Specializing in economic development and drawing from his experiences in Louisiana, Japan, Mexico, and Puerto Rico, David begins by sharing ways to achieve resilience throughout a local region by investing in small business, growing individual entrepreneurship, and creating continuity plans. The conversation then shifts in a more personal direction as he provides an intimate look at several transformative experiences from his own life and his perspective on the four steps to take to move our individual lives and communities towards resilience. Throughout, he shares stories and anecdotes that weave all these lessons together. Enjoy this conversation between David Dodd and David Bilbrey, and I'll join you again after. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm here today with David Dodd. He's the founder and CEO of International Sustainable Resilience Center, or ISRC. Welcome, David. Thanks for taking some time to talk today. It's great to be here, David. Thank you for having me. You know, looking at the work you're doing, it's really interesting and important in the times we're living in. This idea of, you know, COVID happening and the natural disasters layering on top of that and how do we handle it, one, whether we're prepared or not, because you have to, and then how can we prepare for that more in the future? So very interesting, really important subject matter. But for starters, I'm really curious about how you found your way to this work. It's one word, Katrina. So I'm a native Louisianian. I, I live in New Orleans, and I was actually working in Mexico. My background is economic development, and I was uh, bringing economic development professional education into Mexico. And I'll never forget this, David. I looked, the hotel I was staying in had a satellite monitor, 
kind of a novelty in the lobby. Came in uh, the evening of August 28th, 2005, and I looked down into that monitor and there was this huge, huge monster covering almost the entire Gulf of Mexico. And I said, oh my God. And I queued into the US News and learned what was happening. And so I was very good friends with the head of economic development in Louisiana. And I sent him a message and I said, what can I do to help? Two days later, on uh, the 30th, he sent me a, excuse the French, but I'm just quoting him, a five-word response. And that was, get your ass to Baton Rouge, because Baton Rouge is the capital of Louisiana. And so I did, and uh, that started a complete shift in my career. So because of the profile of Katrina, and I put together a big summit in Washington with Texas, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, and Alabama, the four affected states, and got a lot of recognition for that, and then started getting requests for similar help to come help try to put the economies back together. So my specialty has always been economic resilience. And uh, flash forward to Japan in 2011, I was helping them develop their economic recovery framework after the Fukushima earthquake and tsunami. And I met a gentleman from the UN, and the next thing I know, I'm setting up a center of excellence specializing in public-private partnerships for disaster resilience and recovery and for sustainability. So the name of my center says that, the International Sustainable Resilience Center. What it doesn't say is that we specialize in public-private partnerships because the name's long enough as it is. And so we established that, got it off the ground in 2017, and now we're fully functioning. And in addition to that, I also do work for the federal government in disaster recovery and economic recovery from disaster. And that's what I'm doing now in, in Puerto Rico. We hopefully can get into that a little bit in, in, a, in a few minutes. Let's talk a little bit about the kind of massive problems you're addressing, maybe tee this up a little bit. And then before we get depressed, we'll talk about the solutions that you're applying and then maybe even some ideas about what uh, we can do as just citizens to, to also take part in this, this work. Sure. Well, let's start with the facts. And the facts are, I wrote a, an article for Yahoo Finance. They asked me to write a guest article. And the title of the article was, Actual Disasters Could Care Less About COVID-19. Because in the terrible tragedy of COVID, which understandably and justifiably got all of our attention. In the middle of that, disasters continued at a record pace. In fact, the record of 2017, which stood for three years, was broken in 2020, as far as numbers and intensity of natural disasters. And the strongest tropical storm, you know, we call them hurricanes, they call them typhoons in other parts of the world, hit the coast of the Philippines, and it was the by far the strongest wind speed that had, had ever hit anywhere in the world. Uh, and then meanwhile, here in the U.S., of course, we know about Lake Charles, and the hurricane, the first hurricane that hit Lake Charles was tied for the strongest hurricane ever recorded. So this is going to continue to happen, David, and it's going to continue to happen in terms of numbers and in terms of intensity. We're having weather events where there never were weather events, tornadoes in uh, the U.K. and in France, and these things are going to continue. So 
we have to continue to the fight against COVID and we have to continue to try to recover and become more resilient to COVID. But in the meantime, we have to continue to become more resilient to natural disasters. And define resilient a little bit for us in, in your perspective. I'll define it first and I'll tell you a quick story that connects mm -hmm. to permaculture, which is a direct connection. So resilience is defined as the ability to better withstand and more quickly recover from disruptive incidents. A disruptive incident could be a natural disaster. It could be a man-made disaster, such as the Gulf oil spill. It could be a pandemic, of course, we know that. It could be a terrorist attack. Think about 9-11. It could be economic collapse. Think about the Great Recession. It could be political upheaval. Um, look at what's happening right now between Palestine and Israel. Mm -hmm. They're all forms of adverse incidents. And so how do you more adequately equip yourself to deal with those? You become more resilient. And becoming more resilient necessarily means becoming more sustainable and learning how to do more with less, learning how to view the community you're in, the systems in which you operate in a holistic manner as an ecosystem. And what is permaculture based on? It's based on those same principles. So there's a, an absolute direct connection uh, between those two. Now, uh, if you'll indulge me for two more minutes, I'll tell a mm -hmm. quick story about yeah. my introduction to permaculture. So I had, I was raised in North Louisiana, a place called Shreveport that no one's ever heard of, but it's three hours east of Dallas. Well, just outside of Shreveport, we had the distinction of having one of the largest army ammunition manufacturing facilities uh, in the U.S., and had been in operation since uh, World War II. And they decommissioned that uh, base in the early 90s. And lo and behold, uh, a group of people came into Shreveport, and one of them was Australian, and he was a student of Bill Mollison. And mm -hmm. they said, we want to establish a national center for permaculture at the Army ammunition plant. And we all said, what? Because there were still tons of weapons out there and no telling what was in the ground. But their idea was they were going to bring in their own dirt. They were going to bring in their own materials. And they were going to do experiments. And they were going to see, you know, how you can deal with things, you know, environmental catastrophes, which it was. It was a super fun site. And the Army took one look at them and said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. But along the way, they were there for three or four months. I, I really became enamored with the whole permaculture movement. And it really was kind of a turning point for me, David, in, in my understanding of the connection between people, the environment, the places that they live. That was a really an eye-opening experience because I was in my early 30s and, you know, was, grew up pretty traditional, thinking about the traditional economy. My dad actually had a factory farm. We had a manufacturing plant that manufactured a living thing. It was a hatchery. And we hatched a million 
baby chicks a month at one point. And how in the world can that be a sustainable practice? It's not. And so learning about a different way was a really great experience for me and led me, I think, down the path. As I told you earlier, I, I have become a big fan of the circular economy movement, which to me, there would be no circular economy movement if it weren't for permaculture. So we've got huge issues. And so let's talk about solutions as you guys are applying them at ISRC. And if you want to just take an example and walk us through a particular project, that might be one way to do it. So I'll leave it up to you. In full disclosure, ISRC is a nonprofit. We do a variety of things, including education on resilience. Again, we specialize in public-private partnerships that increase resilience and in integrating resilience into public-private partnerships of all, all types. And one of the things that we hope to do, and we have some contacts, is to ensure that this big infrastructure plan that is coming down, down the pike and in some form or fashion certainly will be passed, that we ensure that both sustainability and resilience are integrated into those projects and that whenever possible, they promote environmental stewardship rather than detract from it. And one of the things that I've done, again, in disclosure for nine years now, is I've done disaster recovery work for the federal government as a contractor. And in late 2017, a group of us uh, reported to Puerto Rico to try to help recover from Hurricanes Irma and Maria, which if there's any comparison to Katrina in the U.S., it's, it's Irma and Maria. Maria just completely tore through Puerto Rico. And their infrastructure was shaky already because of economic hardships they'd had for years. So I didn't come until mid-2018, but we were trying to address not only the recovery, but address resilience through transformative and more sustainable economy. And a part of that the field coordinator, who is the leader of the economic recovery team, visionary guy, started looking at how we could develop sustainably in a way, a, a very similar way to permaculture, but looking at the blue infrastructure, the coral reefs, the seagrass, seaweed, beaches, sand dunes, mangrove, orchards, and how that could be valued and the value of that be put into making certain that those natural infrastructure assets were all connected, that they fed off of each other, that they were sustainable. And when you include the fisheries, that the fisheries operated in a sustainable manner, operated in a, in a manner that had the least impact on the environment, and that idea, that concept has moved toward reality in a big way. And we are having a, a summit that's free to attend and it will be a virtual summit on that in which we're gonna bring in expertise talking about sustainable development, talking about how natural assets can be valued and protected and so it's really exciting to see this really in practice. And, you know, in my mind, you know, this is a form of permaculture because we're applying many of the same principles. 
so what kind of solutions are you applying when a natural disaster occurs? You know, what's the most recent one you guys have worked on? Well, the most recent is, is still Puerto Rico. That's a major part of our, our plan, but we also are trying to build capacity. One of the things that happens in an economy that's ravaged by a natural disaster is you have a loss of capacity. When I say capacity, David, that really means, you know, ability to obtain the resources needed to move an economy forward. And we have focused a lot on, on that and building organizational capacity, actually creating a new regional organization that is going to cover the region where we're going to do the natural asset initiative. So they'll be a part of that. And, you know, we really try hard to take a holistic approach to economic recovery and resilience because one of the stories I, I often tell, David, is when I was in Japan, we took a tour of four cities on the East Coast that were devastated, completely devastated by the tsunami that hit after the earthquake that damaged the Fukushima plant. This was all north of Fukushima. We weren't in any radioactive uh, danger, but we certainly saw absolute destruction. And there was a port city called Afantu, and they had a big Nissan steel plant there, and they made fenders for, for the Honda Accord. And the plant had a very thorough continuation plan. They call business resilience plans, they call them continuity plans because it's continuity of operations, but really they're resilience plans. Anyway, they were able to be up again in 48 hours. The problem, David, was they couldn't operate because no one could get there because the citizens were dispersed, their homes were destroyed. So you can't look at economic resilience in a vacuum. You have to look at whole community resilience before you can have economic resilience. Right. I, I remember uh a story that Toby Hemingway was telling years ago, and he was talking about when he you know, first got into permaculture and bought a property and built this beautiful food forest. And he was standing out at the, the gate by the road one day. And he's like, you know, if stuff goes wrong in the world, unless I'm willing to stand out here with a gun and protect all this, I'm going to be in trouble. So I need to start like <laughs> sharing the, yeah. sharing the word and getting other people resilient as well. Cause I, you know, you can't, you're not an Island. You're on a planet hurling through space and we're all this together. So real quick, you know, a butterfly flutters its wings in the Atlantic. And by the time it gets to the other side of the Pacific, it's a hurricane. You know, that's the old thing mm -hmm. about packs. Again, this has to do with both the flaws in our current economic system and what permaculture takes into account that the traditional, you know, economy doesn't. And that's the linkage between, between organisms in an ecosystem. So they couldn't make the, the fenders for the Accord, so they couldn't assemble Accords in Tokyo. So guess what? American dealerships were running out of Accords. That's the impact. And understanding that impact, whether it's positive or negative, is a key, key principle of resilience. Right. And I, I don't think a lot of us in the West and in America are really aware of those dynamics and how many things we're dependent on. I'm, I live in a little mountain town. There's a lot of mountain biking here. And there was, there's been huge disruptions in the supply chain for bicycles. So th they can't get enough bicycles. There's long wait periods, all these things. 
no one ever thought of that about that daily life, right? There's all of these systems that we're heavily dependent on. And because they haven't broken down, we feel like they won't break down, right? <laughs> right? But we've right. had several things happen recently that show us that's not true. Uh, not least of which would be Texas's electrical grid, right? In Canada, if that happened, there wouldn't have been a disruption. They have systems in place for their grid to function, even if it's 50 below zero, not in Texas, right? So understanding the systems, what the weaknesses are, and then what we need to do to strengthen them in these scenarios is hugely important. And probably the bigger issue there is just how do you get a system that's so dysfunctional and a government that's so dysfunctional and so short-sighted to even consider it and put money towards those kind of things, right? Because there's not a- I can, I can agree more. <laughs> there's not a, an immediate payoff. You're not necessarily going to get elected the next time around because you did this, but it's going to be actually taking care of the citizens. So that's, that's a big piece. Well, uh, let's talk about Puerto Rico a little bit. What, what were you guys doing in Puerto Rico? The Blue uh, Infrastructure uh, Initiative is really front and center right now, but we've also done a lot of work in trying to build or rebuild the entrepreneurial ecosystem there. Often, you know, when you talk about economic development, people, you know, their eyes kind of fog over and they think, oh, you're out chasing General Motors. And there are, you know, there are a good number of economic development organizations that do that. But there are more and more economic development organizations are undertaking sustainability, resilience, equity, inclusion, treating everyone fairly. These are all things that economic development organizations are having to face. It's not that they just woke up and said, oh, I'm in line and I'm going to go do these things. They're having to do these things because they're having an impact, a huge impact on a community's ability to help entrepreneurs, to help small businesses. And again, I'm not necessarily a fan of, of recruiting firms from one place to the other, but if a firm is growing and it wants and needs a new location, it has an impact on that as well. So all of this awareness is coming about, coming out of this pandemic and the social unrest we've had this year. And certainly we would wish never that this pandemic occurred or that the loss of life occurred. But if there is a way to look at it in a way that is the silver lining, so to speak, of the cloud, is it's greatly increased the awareness of our environment, of climate, and the role of climate, and really has awoken a lot of people who were asleep when it came to those critical issues. And so resilience has certainly become a, a top of mind and top of discussion issue in all circles. But, you know, when you look at, you know, how you really help transform an economy from being very fragile to robust and resilient, you start with things like that, like the entrepreneurial ecosystem, like, you know, moving away from a tax incentive-based large corporate economy to one that's more reliant in, on local assets and local skills and things like, I did a lot of work in Arizona, so I'm very familiar with Tucson and Brad Lancaster and his, and his movement with stormwater. And it was amazing, you know, 
then he and his partner, they buy this dilapidated house and then they sneak out literally at night and do these curb cuts to divert the stormwater. And so the city gets wind of this and instead of arresting, they hire him (laughs) 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 to to help them to, you know, develop an entire system. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's incredible. So they capture that water and they store it and they're able to use it. And it's simple things like that, that people don't, you know, don't often recognize or realize that there are, there are things that aren't rocket science. They're not complicated. And in New Orleans, catch basins have become the new cool thing. You know, it's like having a Mardi Gras flag out in front of your house if you have a catch basin now. It has made a difference in helping us deal with, with water. And I'm a big fan of of collaboration, especially from seemingly disparate parties. So I am affiliated also, besides the the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, I'm also affiliated with the Water Institute of the Gulf that was established as a result of the BP oil spill and the degradation of the coast of Louisiana. You know, Louisiana, David, loses the equivalent of three football fields of marshland every 90 minutes. That's how rapidly the coast is deteriorating. And the more it goes, the worse it gets. And that's because of decades of of sort of misuse or what what is the, what's going on there exactly? It's a combination, Uh, certainly misuse. And, you know, when they started drilling in the marshes of Louisiana, they they cut canals, which allowed saltwater encroachment which then killed the native vegetation, which led to the loss of coastline. And so it goes on and on. And then, of course, there's sea level rise. So, and it's a very complicated story. I could do an entire show with you on what happened to Louisiana after the flood of 1928, when they dredged the Mississippi and they built all the levees. And, you know, all of that had an impact, a huge impact, uh, and not a positive impact although it allowed for the city of New Orleans to grow to to what it is now and allowed the U.S. to use the Mississippi River as a major way to feed the rest of the world, it still caused a lot of of unforeseen circumstances. So the Water Institute pulled together, and they call it 10X because it's all along Interstate 10 from Florida to California. And all of these states, the resilience uh, officers in all of these states and cities along Interstate 10 come together to talk about places that have too much water and places that don't have enough water. And you go, okay, what's the connection there? Well, they both have issues with water. And how can they work together to try to address those issues? It's really interesting for someone from Phoenix to talk to someone from New Orleans because, you know, they have quite different circumstances, but they find that they have similar needs in the way of ensuring that there's enough for Arizona and that there's not too much in Louisiana. So those are, you know, those are really interesting things. But back to Puerto Rico, I I think that, you know, the, the biggest impact I think that we're going to have is in the area of increasing the capacity, the understanding of what economic growth really 
is uh, now and what it really should be. And sustainability is at the top of mind and so is resilience. So you're getting an understanding of what's going on and then are there actions you're taking to help build those economies and that resilience? Yes. And, you know, this is where the federal government can really be a positive factor because through grants, you know, we've been able to put some the foundation in place for this transformation and several tens of millions of dollars in grants doing things like establishing a nonprofit that's dedicated to the blue economy and establishing a separate but related research center that's going to be researching ways to more uh, sustainable ways and more environmentally friendly ways to utilize this ocean economy. And then on the, the entrepreneurship side, establishing entrepreneurship centers and accelerators and incubators that help businesses get off the ground, establishing programs to help small businesses, to help them navigate finding resources, getting financing that they need to grow and providing people with opportunities that they may not have had. So all of those are interconnected. The work of ISRC, it's related to disaster recovery, but it's not necessarily first responder emergency management. It's more long-term putting these pieces back together that create a a resilient and sustainable community. I thank you for bringing that up because that's often neglected. You're correct. We focus on recovery and uh, long-term recovery and resilience, but we couldn't function without the work of the first responders and the emergency management officials, uh, the people that actually stabilize what is often a very unstable situation. We consider them partners, very, very important partners to us. You know, they're the people that run into the building when everyone else is running out. They're the people that put themselves in harm's way to save lives and property. They're triage in the emergency room, and you are um, the doctor that's creating an exercise and diet and health plan <laughs> moving forward, sort of, right? That's a great analogy. I'm going to have to pay you a bonus now every time <laughs> I say that. All right. But no, that's exactly right. They're the guys that are say, that are determining what can be saved, what can't be saved, who's going to be okay without a lot of help, and in the middle is the really the really critical thing is who will survive, but who cannot survive without assistance. And so that's the basic triage concept. It's been practiced. That was actually developed after 9-11 uh, by a leading person here. He was in New York at the time, and he moved here after Katrina, Michael Heck, and he developed that system. And it's really critical. There are some businesses that are going to be okay. There are some businesses that, you know, we're barely hanging on before that, that aren't just aren't going to make it. And we hate that. The number that uh, the federal emergency management agency FEMA throws out is 40% of businesses in a major disaster won't ever reopen. And of the ones that reopen another 30% of those won't make it uh, five years. So the, the numbers are pretty horrific. And anything we can do to lower that by, again, before the disaster, making sure that they have a plan in place, making sure that they 
have adequate insurance, making sure that they take the steps that are necessary, not only for themselves, but again, for their employees to be better prepared. There's not a person in the world. I'm, I'm making a bold statement here, David, on your show. There's not right. a in the world that does not need a preparedness plan. This does not need a store of food and water. This does not need uh, backup and, and redundant sources of power and communication. Nowhere, nowhere on earth should someone not have that. And your show is about, you know, something that I have a lot of, again, a lot of affection for the whole idea of permaculture and the circular economy. That's, that's a part of it. Being ready and being able to be self-sustainable to the greatest extent possible. I mean, I taught, I said, you know, my dad owned the factory farm. I mean, we saw it. Imagine not being able to have a source of food if all the transportation of food, uh, the supply chain is cut off. Imagine not being able to go somewhere close by and be able to get fresh uh, vegetables or produce or whatever. And there are millions, hundreds of millions of people that are in that situation right now around the world. My grandparents who lived through the depression, that, that, that generation, they all had a garden, they all canned vegetables and fruit. Like they, they had a plan just because they didn't want us like starve to death if, it, if a you know, depression ever happened again, but that equally applies to any number of things that could happen in our current world. And I'm sort of allergic to certain elements of sort of the prepping community and whatever into the world kind of uh, philosophies, but it doesn't, you don't have to have that kind of perspective to realize that there's some really fragile systems in our, just in America alone, where you definitely could go without power and food for a week or two and not even be a major natural disaster. Just You're exactly right. And, and that's a very important point to make. Preppers are, they're getting ready for the end of the world. That's why they call them preppers. They're preparing for the end of the world. You don't have to be prepared for the end of the world. What you should be prepared for is, again, three or four days without power, without food, without water. You don't have to have a, you know, a store of nuclear-grade weapons <laughs> <laughs> to be prepared or you know, a, you know, a place 30 feet underground. You don't have to have that. You know, We're going through this right now, and one of the things that I always make sure people understand, I use a very broad term for resilience, and I'm, I cited some things at the beginning of the show, but cyber attacks are a form of, of man-made disaster. And we're going through mm -hmm. that now, right? With this uh, pipeline, which ironically, I think could spur some, some more thought about this dependence we have on this stuff we pull out of the ground and reducing that dependence. But anyway, this is going to be a, a factor. So let's say there's an attack on the grid and we all lose power for not a couple of days, but a couple of weeks. How do you stay in touch? How do you continue to do whatever it is that you do? And, you know, those things are, they're worth thinking about because the chances of those things happening, they have increased steadily over the past 30 years. They're going to continue to increase. Just be prepared. You know, it's the old Boy Scout motto. I guess now, right. Scouts, right? the Scout motto, be prepared. 
be prepared. Well, yeah, and just so so just to reference for people listening, so there there was this attack recently on this oil pipeline that's never been shut down before that supplies oil to the entire eastern side of the country, apparently. And so while yeah, we, we need to get away from petroleum, this is just an example of cyber attacks can take down systems of many different kinds. And uh, really, obviously, it's a question of when, not if those kind of things are happening, because they already are, and they understand very little about what just happened until weeks or months later, right? There was one on the, you know, in the U.S. government, right? Even Pentagon and different places when, last year, whenever that was. And a lot of information was compromised that we still don't even probably fully understand that could affect us <laughs> in the coming years as well, right? So that brings up you know, two things. One is, you know, let's talk a little bit about the connection between personal resilience and community resilience as it relates to food and energy, but also on sort of an, an emotional and thought and sort of spiritual level, like how do we have personal resilience so we don't just go into complete panic mode when something happens, right? Because there's a huge difference in an outcome of someone who can remain calm and keep moving forward and taking the appropriate action for the situation versus someone that just freaks out. You know, so let's talk about that on, on both of those. I will, with your permission, I'll dive deep. All right. I've had to practice personal resilience. Two major uh, life-changing events in my life. In 1994, I had a, a horrific automobile accident. Uh, I broke 16 bones. Um, I lost six pints of blood. I flatlined in the ambulance. They said I wouldn't live, and then they said I wouldn't walk again. And I came out of that uh, walking out of the hospital three months after the accident. They said I'd never do that. That's not a testament to me. It's a testament to what I learned. And I always say there are four things that are absolutely necessary for resilience, whether it's personal resilience, whether it's community resilience, state resilience, national resilience. The first is you have to gain knowledge. And I was very lucky, David, because I gained knowledge from my parents. Now my parents were 44 when I was born and I'm 60. And their lives, living through the Great Depression, living through World War II, my dad had an unfortunate occurrence happen with a business partner and led him to lose everything when he was 43 and start all over. Uh, the year I was born. So that was a very fortunate thing for me because I didn't have to be educated. I was shown by example. If you don't go through that, and if your parents or grandparents haven't been through that, then you need to learn. You need to expose yourself to knowledge about resilience. And there are a myriad of ways to do that. There are online courses. You can just Google it. In fact, FEMA itself has a great series of courses on, on resilience um, and how, how to be more resilient. The second thing is, out of that knowledge, you have to develop a set of principles. It doesn't have to be anything even written down, but it has to be things that you have in your mind, you know, that I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to work in my community to help it be more prepared. I'm going to do things that will increase the sustainability and therefore increase the resilience of my of my neighborhood. And then the, the thing that comes after principles is action. Because you can have all the principles you want, but if you don't act, if you don't what you're thinking you're going to do, you know, you need to do, then 
you've wasted your time and energy. So taking action, going out and, and getting those supplies, going out and helping clean the gutters in your in your neighborhood uh, because they've gotten full of uh, brush, helping clean that out, you know, under supervised volunteerism, things like that. And then, you know, the last thing is uh, the results. You can go out and be active all day long, but if you don't produce a result, if you don't do something that makes a change of some kind, and we all want it to be a positive change in your community's ability to withstand adverse incidents, uh, in your own ability to withstand adverse incidents. Almost two years ago, I contracted through a cut in my foot a very rare, very aggressive and deadly flesh-eating bacteria. And 36 hours later, I was having my left leg removed to save my life. And the lessons, again, the lessons that came from my own parents, the knowledge that I had gained about personal resilience, about the ability to withstand and the ability to come back from whatever happens to you. And now I have a beautiful... $60,000 artificial leg with a microprocessor in the knee. And uh, I'm not running the marathon yet, but I, I'll, I'll- So you're, you're not the million in. dollar man because the technology has gotten cheaper, but you're the $60,000 man. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah. The bionic man. Right. Yeah, uh. exactly. The bionic man. So, so, you know, it's a combination and you don't have to go. The, the good news is you don't have to almost die twice to become resilient. Well, that's good. It absolutely can be learned. You don't have to learn it by example. You can learn it by, again, exposing yourself to knowledge and educating yourself on how to be more resilient. And again, the tie with what your show's about is obvious. You cannot be sustainable if you're not resilient. So how does one gain that resilience, especially in the context of what you just described of going through a, a major personal you know, health issue, but just like back to the sort of the personal sort of emotional and intellectual resilience how does someone prepare that didn't have the upbringing you did to be able to weather these storms that's a an extremely important area that is far too little is, is discussed about that about your emotional uh, your mental and your spiritual uh, resilience because if you're not aware and you're not in tune with yourself you're not resilient. You are, in fact, very susceptible. And we know what happened during COVID, David. We know about the suicide rate during COVID. We know about suicide rates after natural disasters. Uh, they often increase dramatically. And the ability to withstand that and to be able to endure something like a disaster that destroys your home or your business or worse yet, someone in your family perishes because of disaster. Being able to absorb that and deal with that, to me, it, it's, it's the same principle. It takes knowledge, it takes studying awareness, studying spirituality, understanding what the human soul and mind and heart are capable of withstanding and preparing yourself. And if you're a person of faith, then, you know, you rely on that faith. If you're more of a spiritual person, you rely on that spirituality and, and that awareness. And there's a lot of help available for that, too. 
had a conversation today with a friend that I have worked with for nine years who, you know, said, I wish that my fondest wish is that the stigma attached to seeking mental health is eliminated, is obliterated from the face of the earth. And I couldn't agree more. And know the signs, know when you need help. I sought help. I had not been back from uh, my recovery, but three months when COVID hit. And it was a blow to be alone, completely alone. And I'm a people person. You know, I travel for a living. I love people. Right. And I sought help. And it's the best thing I ever did. And, you know, there are many people now that are quietly suffering, David. And that is as important as having water and food, if not more important. Again, it's not a wishy-washy thing. It's a practical thing. Seek spiritual guidance and help. Seek mental guidance and help. Seek physical help. Uh, make sure you're in physically in good shape. Take care of yourself so that when these shocks do come, and they will, disasters are going to happen of all kinds, so that you'll be ready. That's the real message. What about community resilience? How can we take action to build that community resilience where we live? It's about one primary factor that overrides everything else. And that's connecting, connecting with your neighbors, connecting with the folks down the street, connecting with and developing caring relationships with people that you may have may have been in a neighborhood for 20 years and never met. Reach out to them because when this happens, people have to rely on each other. And if they're not connected, if there's not, you don't have to be best friends, but if there's not knowledge of who's in the neighborhood, of who might need extra help in case of an emergency. And if they don't know you and don't know the areas in which you need help, you can't be resilient. You can't be a resilient community. You can't be a resilient neighborhood if there's not connectivity between you. If you're not connected, you have to be connected. That's a really good point. And that kind of gets back to communication, right? So in a situation where normal communication breaks down, if you've communicated over the, the preceding months and years to know who those people are and who's got resources to share what those resources are, who's got needs or will have intense needs if things change or the power goes out or whatever, then you're just developing communication. It's just and developing it years ahead gives you the ability to have knowledge on the ground that's impossible to gain once the, the event hits, right? So it's opening up that channel of communication so that you have that to work with, right? And it, which is going to greatly expedite the, you know, how quickly you can respond and help the other people in the community. So I like that. That's really good. That's it. That's the key. I mean, there are, there are a lot of things that you can do as a community, but unless you're connected, you're not going to be able to do those things. So having a near-death experience, this is always interesting to me. So talk a little bit about what that did to you and how it changed the way you look at, at your life. Oh, it completely changed me in both instances. The first instance, the accident, you know, I was young and, you know, pretty brash and 
and but I was not sure exactly where I was going. I, I knew that I had found a calling in economic development. I always did a small business development, minority and women-owned business development. I helped small businesses with contracting issues, things like that. And I really got a lot of satisfaction out of that, but I wasn't really sure where, where I, that was leading. And I had just started teaching at the uh, your alma mater, the University of Oklahoma, at the Economic Development Institute, which is a continuing education and professional development national program. And after that accident, I knew that I wanted to become deeply involved with educating people, and especially, again, educating people on what I consider is the best way to do economic development, and that's to start at home, to start with your small businesses, your existing companies, your entrepreneurs, and um, became dean of that institute and then took that institute to uh, Mexico the first time it had ever been taught outside the United States to a place that really was hungering for learning how to build capacity in economic development. So I finished that chapter, got into resilience again while I was in Mexico. I got into resilience through Katrina and then ended up doing all these resilience and recovery projects uh, and founded the center. But again, I, I felt like I was somewhat, you know, not, I don't know, I wasn't focused the way I should be focused. And I was planning a big event in October. This occurred to me September of 2019. And after that happened, the very first thing I said, David, when I came out of the fog of surgery and painkillers, I said to myself, I said, I'm doubling down. You know, I was not only left here once, I was left here twice. And the doctors told my daughters, the incident with my amputation, I had a lot of problems because of scar tissue that had formed in my, in my windpipe as a result of the first accident. They couldn't do surgery because they were afraid I wouldn't make it because I was having such trouble breathing and my lungs were filling up with fluid. They had to resuscitate me four times. And the doctors told my daughters, if he's going to live, it's up to him. And they basically said, well, then he'll live because there's no one that, that, that has more will to live than our dad. And coming out of that, and that awareness, I said, okay, uh, someone's sending me a signal here and it's a pretty strong signal. I've got to double down. So we doubled the size of the event. We doubled the participation in the event. It was a global event that was held here in New Orleans. And my surgery was in September and we had this planned it all, got it all ready and conducted it the first week of March. And then COVID hit. So for me, you don't have to go through all that to realize why you're here. And we're all here for a reason. Every one of us is here for a reason. Now, we don't have to save the world. Maybe the reason we're here is to, you know, be the best janitor and do the best at whatever you do. You don't have to save the world to have a purpose and to be of value to this world. You know, we all have within us some desire to achieve and follow that desire and follow wherever it leads. If you would have told me growing up the son of a chicken farmer in Logansport, Louisiana, a town of 1,800 people, that 48 years later, you know, when I was 18 or 38 years later, I would be, you know, doing what I'm doing now and where I'm doing it, you know, I would have said, what are you smoking? Because I want some of it. It's 
destiny, but it's destiny that you can have an influence on. You can have an influence on, create your own destiny. And if you believe in something, you have passion for something, again, it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be being passionate, you know, for keeping a school clean and sanitary to, you know, help the kids have a better learning environment. I mean, that's pretty important, especially now. It's really important. So find what it is that gives you joy and makes you feel fulfilled. And you can say, oh, well, this all just happened to you. Well, it happened, but it didn't happen with me just sitting on the bench like Forrest Gump. You can have an influence on what happens. You can influence your own future. And yeah, there are things that are going to happen that are completely out of your control. I know that I had two things happen that were completely out of my control, but I didn't let that stop me. And you shouldn't let things that happen to you stop you either. We all have hardships. Don't embrace the hardship, reject the hardship, embrace the hope that comes often out of that hardship and you'll have a more fulfilled life. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time. This has been a, a great conversation. I appreciate your thoughts and sharing some of these rather intense things you've been through. Uh, where can people find out more information about you and, uh, and your work? My work, and you'll find more about me through that, just go to the website. It's www.isrc-ppp. Three P's, public private partnership. So it's dot org. It's a nonprofit org. So www.isrc-ppp.org. Would love to have everyone come take a look at what we're doing. We're doing some pretty exciting things. Very good. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, best of luck in everything that you're doing. Well, thank you, David. It's been a real joy to be on your show. And, and I really appreciate the opportunity. And that was David Dodd. Find his work with the International Sustainable Resilience Center at isrc-ppp.org. The link for that is in the resources section of the show notes, along with another to the great book by Kate Raworth, Donut Economics. I highly recommend this title for anyone interested in alternatives to the dominant economic model, and it's available from Chelsea Green Publishing. I've also included a section in those notes for previous episodes of the Permaculture Podcast related to today's topic. Those include Bill Summers on finance and economic development, mutual aid with Zev Friedman, and the several individual conversations on fire and disaster preparedness with Matt Fiddler, Oliver Gaucher, and Chris Gilmore. When I first sat down to edit this episode, I wasn't sure where this conversation with the heavy initial focus on economic development would fit into the catalog of the Permaculture Podcast. Though I take a broad view on what it means to practice these ethics and principles in our individual lives and society, and focus less on the landscape during interviews in order to expand the community discussion of what permaculture can look like beyond that space, there was quite a bit of this interview which initially sounded like it was steeped in the world of business as usual. As I listened to David talk about the kind of work he's engaged in, however, the way these systems move resources and knowledge from government to small business from the national to the regional and local level, began to make sense and made me think of chapter 14 of Bill Mollison's Designer's Manual. 
That chapter highlights many different ways to look at permaculture outside the garden or homestead, and remains a reminder from one of permaculture's co-founders of all the pieces of our society that need the application of our beloved design. So far, however, we've only begun to scratch the surface. Knowing what David and the International Sustainable Resilience Center and other related organizations are doing provides us an opportunity to engage with these allies and ensure people, communities, and Earth are considered and planned for in all of their actions. If you know of or work with communities, companies, or nonprofits that apply permaculture to their practices of inculcating resiliency, I'd like to learn more about them. Leave a comment in the show notes for this episode or get in touch. Call or text 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you prefer to affix a postage stamp to an envelope and write a letter, my address is Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Until the next time, explore what you find most sustaining to your well-being and participate in the activities that build your personal and community resilience while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.